Good morning. Can you hear me? Good? All right. So yeah, I am Josiah Overly. I go by Joe. And then in the back, you can see in the picture here, my, my wife, Vivian, and our son, Asher. I want to say first, thank you for having us, and also thank you for supporting us. Uh, I haven't been back at Stonington in probably four years, um, so it's good to be back and share a little bit and to open God's Word with you. Today I want to start with a question. Yeah, if you hear the sound in the back, that's my son growling. I don't know where he learned that. Might have been me, probably my wife, but we'll see. So I got a question first uh, to start today. What provokes you? What provokes you? And when we hear the word provoke, we often think of something negative, uh, something that causes us to be very angry, right? But provoke doesn't always mean something angry. It doesn't always have to be associated with anger. For example, you go to the pet store or you go to your neighbors who are selling their puppies and the puppy looks up to you with its big eyes and it says, take me home. It's provoking you. It's provoking you to say, honey, we're taking the dog home, right? So provoke isn't always bad. But often, often this is how we think of the word provoke. Something that makes us angry. Something that makes us angry. Sometimes when I'm driving, I look like this. Usually when they've got miles and miles of traffic cones, but there's no construction going on, and we're all going 35 into 70. <laughs> so what provokes you? What provokes you? That's the question I want you to think about today as we look through God's Word together. What provokes you? A couple years ago, I went on a short trip to a south, southeastern country, and we were just taking it all in. We were enjoying the culture. We were enjoying seeing the many different things this country had to offer. We went to all the tourist spots. We ate with the locals. We ate on the side of the street. We ate delicious, cheap food. It was great. We even got the funny hats. <laughs> we, we acted like the, the locals. But then, on the night of my birthday... I was standing on the side of the road waiting for my Uber. And what happens? A, car, or a scooter drives by and rips my cell phone right out of my hand. Just rips it right out of my hand. I'm standing here like this. And they just drive by and take it. And this provoked me. So I started running. Started running. And I remember we passed the police station. And I started running to the police station. And I ran in. And there was a guy sitting at a table with his feet on the desk, a TV that was in black and white, and a fan. And I'm like, hey, I just got my phone stolen. And the guy's like, fill out this paper. I'm like, I'm so angry. My phone has just been stolen. I got this phone for my birthday. And I was celebrating, and we were out in this country, and, and my phone was stolen. I was provoked. So again, what provokes you? What causes you to come to anger, okay? So today we're going to be looking at the story of Paul going into Athens, okay? Paul going into Athens. And to set the background, Paul has been in Thessalonica, he's been in Berea, and he's been chased out of both of those places, and he lands in Athens, okay? He had never planned to go to Athens. He had never planned to go there. But he got chased out of Berea, and so he had to go to Athens. And so while he's there, he's thinking, all right, I'm going to check out the city. So he's waiting there. 
He's waiting there for Silas, and he's waiting there for Timothy. And that brings us to chapter 17, verse 16. So we're going to look today at what Paul saw and what Paul felt. What Paul saw and what Paul felt. So in verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that city was full of idols. So the first thing we can see, if you're taking notes, is Paul saw a city full of idols. Idols everywhere. And to give you a little background about Athens, Athens during that time was one of the most glorious cities of its time. Okay? It had one of the best universities. The smartest people lived in Athens. It was beautiful. Okay? It was beautiful. But the city was full of idols. Okay? That was the first thing that Paul saw. That was the first thing that he saw when he walked into Athens. It says in the Greek that the city was overrun, overrun or swamped with idols. There was idols everywhere. In fact, some people say there was more idols than there were people. It was easier to find an idol than it was to find a person. Imagine that. That's crazy. There's idols everywhere. There's idols everywhere. So this is what Paul sees when he first walked into Athens. He sees idols everywhere. All right, so what did Paul feel? Okay, what did Paul feel? It says that Paul felt very distressed. Very distressed. Some other versions say his soul was provoked within him. Again, that word provoke. What provokes you? Okay, so what did Paul feel? He felt greatly distressed. And this word distressed is a combination of two different words. A combination of sadness and a combination of anger. Sadness and anger. So a couple examples. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says that, the love, that love is not irritable or angry or given easy to anger. Right. So this is an example of this irritability or this distress, this anger side of what Paul was feeling. He was feeling angry. He was feeling irritable. He's walking around seeing all these idols and he's mad that they're not worshiping the one true God. All right. So when this idea of anger or irritability is expressed toward idols, it's a godlike characteristic. It's a godlike characteristic. Why? Because they're not worshiping the one true God. So being angry about that is also a godlike quality. God wants all of our worship. So this idea of anger is something that we can see here in in Paul's life. All right, in 2 Kings 17, it says they burned incense on all the high places, the nations like the nations that had sorry, on all the high places like the nations that the Lord had driven out before them. They did wicked things, what? Provoking the Lord to anger. Again, provoking the Lord to anger. This distress, he feels angry inside of him because he sees the 30,000 idols in Athens. But there's also another side of this word distressed. We can see in Mark 6. Jesus says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So as you think about Paul, he gets to Athens, a place he didn't intend to be. Right? He had to flee Berea. And he gets there, and what does he see? City full of idols everywhere. And what does he feel? He feels distressed. 
He has compassion, but also anger. Okay? The sadness. Okay? He sees them, and they're like a sheep without a shepherd. Right? So Paul feels this anger, but also this compassion, like Jesus says in Mark 6. So this leads us to see, what did Paul do? What did Paul do? All right? He saw the idols. He saw the idols everywhere. And he felt this distress, this sadness, but also this compassion. What can I do? All right? As we think about our own life, maybe we don't see idols everywhere. Maybe we don't see people that are super lost. But what is our reaction? What do we do? What do we do? In verse 17... It tells us what he did. All right, He reasons with them. Let's go ahead and look. He reasons with them. In verse 17, he reasons with them. And this idea of reasons, he had a dialogue with them. He had a conversation with them. Okay, The first thing he did, he wants to build rapport with them. He, he has a conversation. Okay, He does this in two different places. Okay, And he, he debates with them about what? Important things. Important things. Jesus and the resurrection. He can see that there's idols everywhere, right? He can see that they're religious. And what does he do? He reasons, he debates with them about Jesus. So he does this in two places. We can see in verse 17, he does this in two places. In the synagogue, with the most educated people. Okay, the most educated people. He has a conversation with them. And he also does it in the marketplace. With the common people. Okay, so he is not scared. Again, Paul lands in the city he's never been to. And he goes straight to the synagogue in the marketplace and he starts having a dialogue with them. He starts debating with them about what he knows to be true, Jesus and the resurrection. And it's interesting that Paul's message was the same no matter who he talked to, no matter where he went. He was straight to the point. Jesus and the resurrection. Right? He wanted to share the truth with them. So he does this in the synagogue and in the marketplace. All right? And then it kind of is interesting. It's like he passes a test. Because where do they take him next? So he meets in the marketplace. He meets in the synagogue. And the people take him to the Areopagus. Okay? The Areopagus... Let's go here. Here's a picture. The Areopagus was also known as the Hill of Ares. Or Ares. Okay? And in the background you can see the Parthenon. The Hill of Ares is where they decided their judicial matters. So it's important. It's a place where the important people made important decisions. So this is why I said Paul kind of passed the test. He's in the marketplace, he's in the synagogue, and they say, we hear those things that you're saying. We want to know more. We want to take you to our leaders. We want to take you to the most important people in our town. So they take him to the Hill of Ares, where they decide judicial matters, and they have a conversation with them. So what does Paul do here? So first he reasons with them. Right? He reasons with them, and now we see he relates to them. He relates to them. All right. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Let's go ahead and stop there. Very religious. So he's in the most important place in the town with the most important people. And what does he do first? He relates to them. He says, I can see... I can see that you're very religious. Okay? Very religious. This word religious in this context can also mean superstitious. 
superstitious. So he's kind of laying a com- compliment into them. He's saying, look, I can see you're religious. But he might also have a second-hand meaning of, I can see you're very superstitious. I can see you're very superstitious. There's gods, there's idols everywhere. Let's keep reading. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he says, I can see you're very religious, but I did see one altar to a God that has no name. It's just to an unknown God. This is interesting. Why do you have an altar to an unknown God? You have many, many, many gods, 30,000, many, many idols. Right? So he's, he tells them, I'm going to tell you what you don't know. There's a story that goes many years ago, before, during Paul's time, there was a drought. There was a drought, and it killed much of the livestock and many of the people in Athens. So one man decided that he was going to let his flock of sheep go in the city. He's going to let them wander around the city. And wherever a sheep would lay down, they would sacrifice that sheep to the idol nearest to it. Whenever this sheep would lay down to a spot where there was no idol, they would sacrifice it to the unknown God. They did this because they didn't want to miss an idol. They didn't want to miss a God. Right? So, again, this idea of superstition. Paul says, you're very religious. You're very superstitious. You have 30,000 gods and you have that one extra one just in case. Just in case you missed one God. Right? So, They have an inscription to an unknown God. I think it's interesting also to point out, he walks into the most important place and it says, you are very ignorant. So he's with the most important people at the most important place and he says, listen up people, you're ignorant. You're ignorant. You don't know about this unknown God and here's what I'm going to tell you. So first he has reasons with them. He relates to them. And thirdly, he shares the truth with them. He shares the truth. This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. So let's take a look what he shares with them. First thing he shares is he is the creator. This God that you don't know about is the creator of everything. He's the creator of you and I. And he doesn't live in temples. He doesn't live in an idol. And he's not served by human hands. Nothing you can do can serve God. So he's telling them. And he doesn't need us. He created the whole world. He created us. And he doesn't need us. He doesn't need you to do anything for him. But this is the cool part. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know him. And as we pause and we think about our own lives, sometimes we come complacent of this. We look at the world around us and think, we don't, we don't even know what to think. We forget that there's a, a Creator God, right? That loves us. That wants us to know Him. He doesn't need us, but He wants us to know Him. And that is a very, very special truth. That He doesn't need us, but He wants us. My dad had a friend in college who was from China. And when she heard that there was a God that created the whole world and that loved her, in that instant, 
she became, she wanted to become a Christian. I think often we forget about this, this special truth that God created the whole world and yet He cares for us. And yet He loves us. And yet He wants us to know Him. In other versions it says to touch and to find God. This is the same word that is used when Thomas wanted to touch the hands of the risen Savior. God wants us to know Him. God wants us to find Him. God is not hiding from us. So he's proclaiming these truths in Athens. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God, and besides Him there is no other. So he reasons with them in the synagogue, in the marketplace, in Oropagus. He relates to them and says, I see all your gods. Let me tell you about the one you don't know. And he says, He's the Creator God. He doesn't need us, but He wants us. And He wants us to love Him, and He wants us to know Him. That's a very special truth. Alright, next we can see He calls them to repentance. He calls them to repentance. Okay, He says, here's the truth. There's a God that created everything, and He loves you. But there's also something else. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. He's not like your gods. He's not like your idols. An image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day where He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. So he calls them to repentance. The word repentance here in the Greek is metanoia. Metanoia. And this has, means to change your perception of life. To change how you view the world. He's calling them to repent. To change how they view the world. To see it how God sees it. There's one God who loves you, who created you, and wants to know you, and wants to love you. But you need to repent. Because God is not going to overlook such ignorance now. Again, what has He just said a couple seconds earlier? I'm going to tell you, you're ignorant of the things you don't know, right? You're ignorant. And now He's saying, God is not going to overlook this ignorance. So repent. Come to metanoia. So as we look back, we see that Paul saw and felt he saw a city full of idols. A city full of idols. And he felt greatly distressed. He had this sadness, but also this anger, this compassion, but this irritability. He wants the people to know the one true God. So what did he do? He reasoned with them. He had a conversation. He debated with them. He related to them. He shared the truth with them. And He called them to repentance. As we think about our own life, think about maybe a lost friend, maybe a family member that you've been trying to reach for a long time. And look at Paul's example. Feel this compassion in your heart, but also this distress. You want want them to know 
so badly. So you reason, you talk to them, you relate to them, you tell them, I understand what you're thinking. And you share the truth with them. And you call them to repentance. So what do you see and feel? Does the lostness of the world provoke you to action? What is provoking your soul within you? What is provoking you to lead to do something for Christ? And what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Often in my life, I think when I see something, I have to do something about it. Because the Holy Spirit convicts my my soul. But if I don't see it, then it doesn't bother me. right? But if you see it, you, you immediately know you have to do something. So that begs the question, am I turning my head not to see the need? Or am I actively searching for opportunities to share the gospel? It's one thing to say, oh, I don't, I don't know anybody that really needs Christ. My friends are all Christians. My family is all Christians. So I'm good to go for now. No, are you actively searching? Again, think, Paul didn't mean to go to Athens. He just landed in Athens and he immediately got to work. He immediately got to work sharing the truth with the Athenians. So you think about Jonah or Paul. Think about Jonah running away from what God called him to do. Or Paul attacking it head on. Okay, so are you turning your head away? Or are you looking for opportunities? This leads us back to our question at the beginning. What provokes us? You may not know what provokes you if you're not searching for opportunities. About five years ago, the Lord called me to Taiwan and He provoked me very quickly. This is a common scene. Something you see often in Taiwan is temples filled with people just like this church. Today, there's only 2% evangelical Christians in Taiwan. So again, as you think about Paul walking into Athens and he sees idols everywhere, it reminds me of Taiwan. There's over 15,000 temples island-wide. People flooding to places to search for God, the one true God that can give them peace, that can give them love. This is an example of traditional folk religion in Taiwan, this ancestor worship. The idea that you need to worship your ancestors, the ones that have gone before you, the ones that have provided for you, the ones that have given you everything you have in life. You need to sacrifice for them. You need to give them food. You need to provide for them in the afterlife so that they can have a better life. Because they did that for you their entire life. So you should sacrifice for them. The idea of the temple. Going to the temple to ask many different gods, like Athens, many different gods for many different things. A similarity between Taiwan and Athens during this time. You'll see people that maybe you don't know in your neighborhood, they're walking, and they'll see a temple that they've never been to. And they'll stop, and they'll worship at that temple. Why? Because they don't know the unknown God, right? They don't know the one true God, and they're scared that they're going to bring shame, or dishonor, or bad favor on their life if they don't worship every God. 
This idea of idol worship, ancestor worship, is prevalent today around the world. It probably even happens in the United States, but it's very evident in Taiwan. It's everywhere. And it's sad. It, it affects my family specifically. It affects many families. This is a, a video I'm about to show. is going to show you the reality of folk religion in Taiwan, the reality of the lostness of the people of Taiwan. In December, my wife's grandmother passed away, and we saw all of the rituals that a Taiwanese family will go through when their, when their family members die. And you may think, oh, this is just someone who uh, practices folk religion often, who goes to the temple every day to pray. No. I had never seen my father-in-law go to a temple. He was just an average Taiwanese guy that when his mother died, he knew what he had to do. He had to worship her. He had to send her to the afterlife with honor. So in this video, you'll see a, bit, a little bit of the funeral process. And you'll see the family on their hands and knees, worshiping grandma and telling her, Grandma, we're here to worship you. We're here to send you to the afterlife of honor. You've become a god and we're here for you. This is a real thing that is happening every day in Taiwan. People are passing away without knowing the truth of Christ. In the funeral process, is a seven-day period where the body is left in the house and they leave all the lights on. They leave all the doors open. And the, the siblings stay in the house and they wait for Grandma's spirit to come back. They believe three days later she'll come back and they need to be there to worship her and they need to be there to, to honor her and to love her. So they're on their hands and their knees and they're praying, Grandma, we're here for you. We're here to send you to the afterlife with honor. Again, this is not some special occurrence. This happens to the average Taiwanese family. When something happens, where do they turn? They're lost. So this short video, I hope, will give you an idea of a little bit about Taiwanese folk religion. Um, so please watch. There's sound back there.当我看到我的家人伏在地上跪拜我最近去世的奶奶时，我泪流满面。他们对着奶奶的遗照哭泣，告诉她她已成为了神，他们在这里悼念和确保她光荣地进入下一个生命。在我奶奶称之为家的小镇上他控制着他们的心灵、思想和灵魂。当我死后，谁来为我超度？谁会来祭拜我、思念我，让我有一个美好的来世？罗马书十章十四节：然而人未曾信他，怎能求他呢？未曾听见他，怎能信他呢？没
They may be praying for prosperity, purpose, or peace in life. However, the cries of their heart fall empty on the idol towering above them. As they come to their feet, the father grabs incense and gives it to his son. Together, they begin to bow in repetition, seeking to honor the gods they believe control their fate. Five years ago, God brought a young missionary intern and a searching young Christian to SYME. He used our time in study and in service to draw us together. At SYME, the environment is much like that of the early church, living, eating, studying, and serving together. It creates a powerful community where the Bible is taught and lived out. We both have seen the need and the power of taking time away from work and life to focus on studying the Bible. Students who had only come to learn English leave with the desire to understand and know God. The many who are hurting see the love of Christ for the first time. Those who once bowed in the temple now lift their hands in worship of the one true God. Although the desperation and darkness are evident throughout Taiwan, the work of Christ is bringing a light and a hope. Our passion is that Taiwan can come to know the love and hope only Christ can give. Starting this fall, we will begin a new role as the director of SYME. We covet your prayers for us as we step out in faith into this new role. We want God to be glorified as we teach, lead, and disciple. We are excited to see how God will use us for His glory at SYME. Would you partner with us in prayer and financially as we tell the Taiwanese the love Christ has for them? So that showed a little bit of the funeral process and just the reality of, of folk religion in Taiwan. It entraps the hearts and souls of people. It's a, it's a real thing that's happening today. It's not just a story in the past that we can see of Paul and all the idols everywhere. It happens today. And people are trapped by it. And the story of, of my grandmother passing away is not uncommon. It happens to many families. They're lost and they don't know where to turn. So that provokes me and leads us as a global church to reach the Taiwanese people for Christ. And we do that through a, a, a discipleship training program that's called SYME, Student Youth Ministries in English. We're using the Bible and we're teaching English. The best way to understand SYME is through these four words. So I'm going to say the Chinese and I'm going to see if you guys can repeat it. It's okay, my Chinese isn't the best either. But <laughs> So the first one is Sunjing. Yo Yi. Menchun, Ingwen. So Bible, friendship, discipleship, English. This is what our discipleship training program is all about. We want to share the Bible, friendship, and disciple Taiwanese people. So our mission statement is we provide Taiwanese with solid biblical teaching, encouragement, and discipleship so that they may reach their peers and go out and strengthen their local churches. Because we know that the local church is God's vehicle for bringing about His kingdom. Okay, So we, we uh, equip students by encouraging them, teaching them, and discipling them. 
So we, we do that through Bible classes. Um, as you can see in the picture, we try to keep class sizes small so students can ask questions, can be brave to talk to their teachers, okay, and dig into God's Word. We do this through chapel. Okay, chapel is a setting like this where students lead worship, they tell their testimonies, they explain Scripture. The cool thing about chapel is it's all student-led. So we have a missionary that will do the message, and then everything else is student-led. Okay, so it's a time where they learn how to serve in their local church. In a size like this, I'm sure there's some people that have never been up on stage. So it's a kind of, it can be a nerve-wracking time for some of them, but it's a good time to grow and get out of their comfort zone. There's ministry class. We're teaching them how to go back to their local church and serve. There's a spot for everyone in the body of Christ to serve in the local church. Okay, In ministry class, we teach students that. Part of ministry class is different classes that I, uh, focus specifically on issues that are happening in Taiwan. For example, ancestor worship. How do you go back to your family after you've become a Christian and tell them, respectfully, I'm not going to worship my ancestors? Okay, How do you go about that? Okay. Another thing is family, family issues, right? How do you help your parents maybe who are fighting or your family members who aren't Christian? How do you help them? That's a part of ministry class. Another part of ministry class is Bible club prep or training them to go out into their local churches and do Bible clubs. Okay, so this is a big component of our program because we want to teach, disciple, make friends with the students, but then push them out to serve. Practical service in their local churches. Okay, so this is an important part of our program. It gives students the opportunity to serve. If you've ever gone on a missions trip or you've ever served in your local church, God gives you a little bit of taste of the satisfaction you have when you're serving Christ and giving glory to Him. And it can really um, ignite people can ignite their souls to go back to their local church and serve. And this is our goal at SYME. In a country where there's only 2% evangelical Christians, it's important that people are going to the churches. Okay, Strong Christian believers are going to the churches and they're reaching out to their community. Because SYME is not a church. Right? We train so they can go back to their church and help their church and reach out. We want to see Taiwanese people come to Christ. We have many examples of students that have come to Christ at SYME. I think the one that hits home most for me, um, my wife became a Christian just before she came to SYME in 2015. And her family is not Christian. She's a first-generation Christian. And so when she came to SYME, it was her first time to have a concentrated time where she's not working, she's not doing anything but studying God's Word. And it was life-changing for her. She became friends with many missionaries, many strong believers. And it all happened because she was in a community of people that were studying God's Word together, showing the love of Christ, and serving. So that kind of brings us to today. I've been serving in SYME for five years now. Um, Recently, they asked uh, us to become the directors of the program. Um, So I'll be in charge of getting new students, Getting teachers, if you would like to come to Taiwan and serve for a month, two months, teach in chapel, teach Bible classes, 
You can come talk to me afterwards. We're always looking for people to short-term missions. Come share and teach at Taiwan. Um, so that brings us to today. Uh, we're back in the States raising financial support um, to go as full-time missionaries. Um, so we're asking for prayer. We're asking also for uh, financial partnership. Um, if you're interested in being a part of what God does in Taiwan, what God is doing in Taiwan, on a personal level, you can come talk to me. There are ways we can get you uh, plugged in also into service um, in short-term uh, missions. One practical way you can uh, serve from where you're at today is called English Cafe. English Cafe is using English conversation with a biblical topic. Right now we're doing it through Zoom. So you can meet online from your home with Taiwanese students, with Indonesian students, many who've never heard of God before, uh, the God of the Bible before, and you can have good practical conversations with them about the Bible. That's just one way that you can be involved with uh, serving with us. So I would ask that you think about praying uh, praying for us and financially supporting us. Um, we are thankful for you as a church body partnering with us. And uh, yeah, thank you for having us. I'll go ahead and close in prayer.